0: Good morning, and welcome to Chapel. My name is Allison Reist, and this summer I worked in West Virginia um, rehabbing old homes in Appalachia.
1: And I'm Rebecca Steiner. I was at a community center called Patrick Central in Evansville, Indiana.
0: So today is an opportunity for all of us, um, the seven students who participated in the service inquiry program this summer, to remember and share a bit of our experiences. As participants, we were allowed the freedom to choose, to go, and to do just about anything we desired, to follow a call, or often to try something new. And while there are some common themes that emerged from all of our time, you'll find that our experiences were varied and unique. Creating peace through art, serving meals, providing simple services to the homeless, intimately vigiling with condemned inmates, and rehabbing rundown homes were just a few of the things we did. We served abroad and close to home and in places in the U.S. that often felt like a foreign land. We met inspiring people and cherished the communities that welcomed us in, learning not only to give of ourselves in love and service, but to graciously receive service from others. Many of us grew accustomed to a simple and ordered life that fulfilled, that fostered a time of self discovery and daily living a life of faith. While we each faced challenges during our time we also experienced great joy and fulfillment as we worked and engaged with others and oriented ourselves in service you'll hear briefly from three sipers today and part of the challenge from coming home from service is trying to figure out how to be at this place at goshen college again We return without the ritual and the support of our beloved communities, and must admit that no one else can ever know the full story and significance of our time. So as an audience, I hope you can recognize that our experiences were deeply personal and often transformative. And while we are joyful to share these stories with you as a small snapshot of our larger time and the SIP program, We also know that no words will ever fully be adequate to capture the totality and the nuances of our experiences. Likewise, the projects that we engage with represent only the smallest fraction of all the wonderful service opportunities there are to be involved with. You should feel free to talk with any of us later, but I would also encourage you to explore and connect um, with a program or with a group that feels personally meaningful to you. And there's a great opportunity today with the Service and Seminary Expo at Java this afternoon. Um, Lots of opportunities to service, so if you're interested, you can stop by there today to check out some of those
1: opportunities. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day and the time we are able to share together this morning. We also thank you for the time we've had to give and receive in service. Today, we are reminded again how to serve you in our everyday lives. As we go on, may we continue to love deeply, serve compassionately, and walk beside our brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. I will light this lamp as a reminder of God's presence with us.
2: Um, Before we hear from some of the service inquiry folks, let's stand and sing. Um, If you would turn in your purple books to number 34. And feel free to stand. Quick explanation, this song has two parts to it, and if you want, you can sing them on top of each other. So what we're going to do is sing through the whole song together once, and then you can decide which part you like best and sing it.
3: And you are always at hand, blessed are you. God.
2: If you turn in your green books to number 36, Miriam and I are going to play the melody through once and then feel free to join in.
3: When in despair I saw raise a cry I was saved by her grace led in her ways wisdom my love the light of my
2: days And you can set
4: Good morning. My name is Linnell Yoder, and I'm a junior elementary education major with a double minor in Spanish and TESOL. I've lived my whole life here in Goshen, Indiana, and it's essentially been something of a sheltered life, surrounded primarily by white, middle-class Mennonite individuals such as myself. This past summer, fueled by a strong desire to understand the lifestyles of those who live lives drastically different from mine, I packed one suitcase with as little as I thought I could get by on for a summer and plunged myself into a completely different world. My goal was to live and serve alongside the people of the inner city and get as far from home as I could cheaply manage in the process. This is why I chose to serve at an organization called Inner City Development in San Antonio, Texas for my SIP experience. Inner City Development is located on San Antonio's west side a region of the city whose inhabitants are 98% Hispanic by origin. It's a low-income area, and there are two low-income housing projects within just a mile radius of the organization that I served with. The mission of inner-city development is to lift the dignity of individuals in the community through providing critical, supportive, basic life services and through inspiring persons to participate in the betterment of their neighborhood through volunteerism. Its ministries include emergency food and clothing for families in need, sack lunches for homeless in the area, basketball leagues for children, and a summer program for children which also provides job training to teens who volunteer with it. My role at Inner City Development was to help make sack lunches and put together grocery bags for a few hours each morning, then assist with the summer program for children and youth from 11 until 3 in the afternoon. These children were often difficult to work with. They could be highly demanding, highly uncooperative, and tended to act out simply because they didn't know how to deal with their feelings that were a product of the struggles they faced in their homes. Many times, I would watch parents, strung out on who knows what sort of drug, drive off with their children and feel my heart sink. All I could do was pray that they wouldn't get in a car accident or mistreat their children upon arriving home, but I know that neglect is one emotional struggle that most of the kids that I worked with were not able to avoid in their homes. I often tell people the story of Jet, the six-year-old boy who cussed me out my very first week of work, all because I told him he'd have to wait his turn to go swimming. I actually ended up chasing after him twice that day when he took off down the street and even fished his shoe out from under a car with a broom. Despite my frustrations, I did everything I could to be patient with Jet and show him an attitude of love. In the long run, this attitude paid off. Jet had several brothers and cousins who refused to listen to other volunteers. However, because they saw how patient I had been with Jet, they trusted me enough to know that I would treat them fairly. These are children that some would label as troublemakers. However, People often fail to see personal turmoil as the source of others' problems, and these kids had been through it all. Though it's not something that anyone admits easily, we all have some group of people in this world that we look upon somewhat unfavorably. We think that we won't ever be able to relate to someone who is so completely different from us, and sometimes we judge them. These people simply don't fit into the social comfort zones that we construct for ourselves. If I took anything away from my time in San Antonio, it was the expansion of my own social comfort zone. Living in Inner City Development's volunteer house along with members of the West Side community meant that I had an interesting assortment of housemates. Rosemary, a 50-year-old former drug addict who screams like a little girl when she watches Mexican soccer. Nancy, a woman whose three children have three different fathers and who just so happens to be my favorite hilariously grouchy fat person, and Lakey, a young poet who spent his childhood shuffled through foster homes and only a year ago was living on the street. This summer, I lived in a place that was different from my hometown in every way possible. I struggled to relate to others, to get around the city, to understand what was socially acceptable there. But I also gained a love and respect for people who might once have seemed foreign and intimidating to me. I see the world differently than I did before this summer, and San Antonio is a place that will be special to me for the rest of my life. Thank you.
5: Hello, I'm Joshua Delp. <clears throat> and. Uh, I'm just going to kind of tell you what I did this summer. Um, I suppose I've uh, gone through the program enough at SIP to admit that I kind of signed up on a whim. Um, But this whim ended up being a very good thing for me. I ended up going to Mexico um, and living at a Catholic worker house called Casa Colibri, um, which I just sort of found on the internet. Um, And it was sort of scary to me to go to Mexico on my own in the beginning. Uh, I had a little trouble with the, getting the, the plane tickets to work out and whatnot. Um, but it ended up being a really great experience. Uh, Casa Colibri is in a the, the state of Jalisco in Mexico, specifically in the town of Ostotipaquillo, which has about six or 7,000 people and is incredibly rural um, uh, and incredibly Catholic, which was something that I found very entertaining and just very interesting throughout my whole experience. Um, the, the Catholic Worker House has a lot of, has some issues um, or difficulties that they, that they deal with. And one of them is that there are, there's a large percentage of the town that refuses to have any, any interactions with them because it suspects them being, of being secret Protestant um, infiltrators trying to get into their society. Um, which is kind of strange, but um, uh Osto Tipaquillo is sort of off the beating, beaten track in Mexico, and uh, there's just not many economic opportunities for people there. Um, so I learned a lot about what it's like for people whose um, the lifestyle that they've lived for thousands of years has been supplanted by, you know, government-supported agriculture in the United States. Um, you can see um, what the sort of core issues that Casa Colibri worked with through my daily routine, um, which in some ways was more routine than I've ever um, lived before, uh, you know, getting up at 7 every day and like, having a sort of strict schedule, but at the same time was almost um, some of the most surprising day-by-day experiences I've had. We would get up early and make breakfast and have meditation. And then we would work in the garden most of the morning, which could be anything from sort of trying to make cow poop-based fertilizer, to trying to chase off the iguanas that were perennially uh, hiding in our garden, um, to making raised beds, or trying to get the the local kids to help us out. Um, We were trying to sort of... uh, create a, um, it was an organic garden and we were sort of trying to teach people through example because in the last 20 years the the sort of traditional farming practices had been almost entirely supplanted by chemical fertilizers and um, sort of non-sustainable farming techniques and we were sort of trying to, I guess, encourage people to return to ways that they had lived earlier. Um, And after that we would make lunch. and invite these sort of street kids that were living in the town from a couple of families that were just seen as the scum of the earth by most people in the town. But um, these kids uh, were, in the end, my by far my favorite part of Mexico. They were just, um, I mean, sometimes they would come beat up and um, from abuse at home or from fighting with each other. And they were incredibly tough because they beat each other up all the time, but at the same time they were some of the sweetest kids. Um, I remember the first day we set up this tarp over sort of a, 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 um, kind of a little, what is the word for it, a little area in the middle of our house, um, a little patio, we set up a tarp over it and this one girl, uh, Sarai, she immediately looked up and said, oh my gosh, you've installed a trampoline. (laughs) And we were like, no, you cannot jump off the roof onto a tarp. <laughs> um, uh, and yeah, the, the, the lunch kids were great. And then we would go and play soccer with them. And uh, they were hilarious and foul-mouthed and competitive. And then in the evenings, I would teach English, which was a very useful skill for people uh, in Mexico. So whether they were looking to learn English and then travel to the United States to find work, or whether they were trying to get into service industries or um, tourism and that sort of thing. And then we would water the plants and hang out a little and go to bed. Um, And so some of the things that I took away were uh, sort of the value that I see in living as a community and the difficulties that that poses. you, you need to learn how to deal with issues you have with people because you will have them and how to sort of, there were people coming and going into the community and you need to learn how to, to connect with people and how to um, you know value different relationships in a sort of egalitarian way. Um, and I also sort of discovered um, a, a type of Christianity that i, I I feel like I was not necessarily aware of through my through my childhood, um, where Christianity is something that that needs to be more than just believing a certain thing and something that is lived out and something that is um, sort of tried. Christianity is supposed to be a life that sort of adheres to the the um, the lifestyle that is sort of put forth in the Gospels, which I think is all too easily ignored. Um, not to say that I have that at all figured out, but I think I have a better idea of where I am trying to go as a Christian. So Mexico is awesome, also Tipaquillo is awesome, and if any of you guys are thinking about SIP, you should go to Casa Colibri. Thank you.
2: Um, Something that I've noticed as I have talked to people about their times in service throughout my life and have now experienced service, is that oftentimes when people go into service and do that type of a thing for an extended period of time, they come out of it with a heightened awareness of the brokenness of the world. And along with that, our own inability to fix it. And as a part of that, it's important to come back with an understanding of the necessity of embracing the spiritual aspect of things. And I know for me, I had an interesting experience going to Iona, a place that is all about spiritual healing and wholeness. For me, the service is coming back. And it has been difficult for me to keep myself from being bitter, to feel like I'm not doing enough and that everyone else isn't doing enough about the brokenness here. And I think it's in these times where we need to remember that we are small, that we are dust, and to dust we shall return. And it is in these times that we turn to God. So we're going to go into a time of prayer, and there will be two different prayers that will be happening. The first, I will be leading, and it will be a prayer of intercession and of calling out for mercy. And then Mara will be talking a little bit more about her experience and leading us in a version of the Lord's Prayer that she has come to know in her time of service. So what we're gonna do is turn in the green books to both number 144, which is the prayer itself, and then the song number 47. And you can keep your finger in both. I'm going to be reading 144, so if you're the type of person that likes to follow along, you can do that, or you can just stay in 47. And I'll be reading a little bit, and when I get to the point where I say, have mercy, O God. I'm gonna have Miriam play the melody on the violin of number 47, and then we will come in and sing. And something I should also let you know is that there will be a period of silence for us to have our own prayers of intercession after each of those moments. And then we will sing. So, Let's pray together. Most merciful God, we wait before you, aware of our frailty, aware of the fragility of our world and the peoples of earth. We remember that we are dust, and to dust we will return. Yet you are our creator, you are our redeemer, Hear our pleas. Hear our cries for mercy. We wait before you in the midst of a weeping and sinful world. Have mercy, O God, on our world, on the places of violence, on leaders who make war, on people who hope for peace. We pray for our world. Mercy, O God. I wait before you in the midst of betrayal and broken relationships. Have mercy, O God, on our families and all we love, on children and parents who are alienated from each other, on husbands and wives who have forgotten how to love, on friends who wound each other, on churches struggling to live in peace. We pray for our friends, families, colleagues, and fellow believers. Mercy, O God. before you in the midst of sickness, grief, and death. Have mercy, O God, on all those in pain, those facing trials and temptations, those who are discouraged or bereft, those whose hearts are full of fear. We pray for all in need of healing and comfort. Mercy, O God. Merciful God, your love never ends. We rest in your care. Amen.
1: Good morning, I'm Mara Weaver. I'm a junior history and secondary education major. I spent my summer living at the open door community at 910 Ponce de Leon Avenue, Atlanta, Georgia. I only tell you the address because 910 is how we were known around the neighborhood. As in, I'd be walking down the street, see someone from the soup kitchen, and they would say, Hey, 910! I thought it was a little strange to be addressed by, by a set of numbers at the beginning, but um, towards the end of my time there, it became a comfort. The Open Door is an intentional community modelled after the Catholic Worker Movement that for the past 30 years has housed between 15 and 30 people. This number depends on the comings and goings of those who volunteer long-term, those who volunteer short-term, and those who are taken into the community because they have no other healthy place to live. This might mean that they're coming from the streets or from prison. The mission of the community is to stand in solidarity with the disinherited. The house offers soup kitchens twice a week, showers and a change of clothes three times a week, a medical clinic and a foot clinic once a week, as well as a women's clinic twice a month, worship and a community meal every Sunday, and transportation to a state prison once a month for those families who cannot afford to go see their loved ones. Besides these things, over the years, um, members of the community, especially long-term volunteers, have taken on side projects. These include authoring books, visiting death row inmates and their families, corresponding with those in prison, putting their bodies in the way of violence and often going to jail for these acts, sleeping on the street, accompanying those deserted to court, instigating protests, being imprisoned for civil disobedience, and more. In addition to these, each time the state of Georgia carries out an execution, the community gathers on the steps of the state capitol to hold a vigil so that it starts half an hour before the execution and ends half an hour after um, the lethal injection has been administered. There's silence as the community stops to acknowledge the life and death of that person, and the continuation of state murder. Committed in the name of Georgians statewide, an especially troubling fact for residents of this community that intends to propagate love, but are still citizens of that same Georgia. The open door is a sanctuary for the marginalized, the poor, the homeless, those oppressed because of race or ethnicity, and for women. I'm especially reminded of the value of such sanctuaries as we observe Sexual and Domestic Violence Awareness Week here at Goshen. I learned firsthand what a safe haven the open door is for women. One morning I was running, and as my route came to a close just a few feet before I reached the yard of the house, I passed a couple of men who I recognized from our soup kitchen. I nodded to them and said hello, as is my custom, And the greeting I received in return was, hey baby, looking good. Blatant objectification and masked misogyny most likely taught to these men at a young age at its finest. I didn't stop to say anything to these men who apparently mistook me for their baby. Instead, I took my last few steps and as I climbed the steps off the street into the yard, I turned and looked directly into their eyes. As soon as they saw where I was headed, these men burst into a frantic and lengthy apology, trying to swallow up the words that they had let slip without a second thought. These men knew how to treat women in the yard and at that house. I just gave them a knowing look, waved, and continued into the house. This may seem like a small victory, perhaps insignificant words that really had no effect on me long term. But this yard is also home to women who have spent the last years of their life working the streets, women who never know if they'll make it through the night without being harassed, and women who have never lived in any situation besides that of economic and social repression. And for these women, it is just as much of a sanctuary. This summer I was surrounded by people who relentlessly prayed and acted and lived for justice and a better tomorrow for the poor and the mentally ill, the homeless and the person of color, and I couldn't help but catch their fervor. The changes began after I'd only been in the house a couple of days. I noticed myself constantly scanning the streets of Atlanta for any of our homeless friends so that I could wave or say hi, because they were just that. They were becoming my friends. They were no longer anonymous recipients of my sympathy or my money, or my embarrassment about the great societal and economic divides that I help perpetuate. I learned to live in an intergenerational, interdenominational, interracial, interclass background household. I also had my fair share of education in less significant skills, such as learning to drive without power steering, playing rummy, and making ham, mustard, and mayonnaise sandwiches at an alarmingly rapid rate. Perhaps most importantly, this summer, I had a chance to put my body where my heart was. This came not only in working with the homeless population of Northeast Atlanta, but also in standing against the death penalty, bearing witness to the two executions carried out by the state of Georgia while I was at the open door. I've always opposed the death penalty because of the way I interpret Jesus' teachings, but I have never had much more of a connection to it than that just opposition. At the open door, not a day passed that we did not pray for those on death row by name and for the abolition of the death penalty. When the time came for the execution of Roy Blankenship, just about three weeks after I arrived in Atlanta, everything in the community stopped to observe his execution. We shared stories of his life, sang his favorite old-time gospel hymn on the wings of a snow-white dove, and waited. When his lifeless body was removed from the gurney at Jackson State Prison, it was taken to Jubilee Partners in Comer, Georgia, where we followed two days later to bury our brother Roy as one of our own among some of those who have passed from the open door, from Jubilee, a sister community to the open door, and from the row. That beautiful sunny Saturday afternoon, Murphy Davis of the open door an amazing woman who knew Roy personally, shared of her many visits with him during um, his 34 years on the row. She also shared of his amazing journey to God. She and others who knew Roy recalled the fervor with which he tried to make sure that anyone he came into contact with was saved by Jesus Christ. He never even gave up on the warden of the prison. If that kind of faith and that kind of will to preach on death row of all places is not a mustard seed, then I don't know what is. Murphy and her husband Ed had visited Roy one last time on the morning of his execution. And at the memorial service, she shared that the first thing Roy insisted on doing when they arrived was praying for her. She had recently been diagnosed with breast cancer, and he assured them that it was she who needed their prayer, not him. He was ready because of his faith in God. Roy Blankenship was executed for murder. Roy Blankenship did not commit murder. He walked in on a murder and didn't stop it. And he, he said to the very end that this was his biggest regret in life, that he carried this guilt with him every day. But that did not mean he had killed this person. He was offered a life sentence three different times during his years on the row, but declined each time because he refused to plead guilty to the murder that he did not commit. Even death couldn't stop this Roy joy, as my housemate Kiana dubbed it, and we all felt the power of his witness and the joy of his life and of his death that day and in the days to come. After the service, Roy's body was lowered into the earth and 20 sets of loving hands secured his place in this cemetery in silence. I helped cover Roy's gray casket with red dirt that day. During my time at the open door, I learned more about the acts of mercy than I ever have in my life, especially about the call to bury the dead. It reminds me of times when, in, during the plague, uh, dead bodies would lie rotting on the street because there was either no family to bury them or because everyone else was scared of catching um, the sickness that these people had died from and meeting the same terrible end. However, I had to think about it in the context of the open door this summer, end of the row, and wonder if these bodies were any less rejected than those that um, had succumbed to the plague. Were they any less shunned by society, any less deserted? These bodies are viewed as contaminated by most of the United States. But at least in Georgia, on that day, we could see to it that Roy's body was buried with love and care, with mercy. Dorothy Day, one of the founders of the Catholic Worker Movement, held that servitude without respect is not servitude at all. It's charity, and it is demeaning, and it is belittling. I believe that as Christians, we are called to servitude to reduce the distance between ourselves and the least of these, and not just for their sake, not for charity's sake, but for our sake as well. I'll never forget the beautiful people that I came to know this summer, and the challenges and joys I faced as a part of a Christian community. Community is about give and take, whether we are talking about the community at the open door, or the community of the kingdom of God, and so is service, but somehow it seems as though I always receive far more than I give. And for this, I cannot thank God enough. As Emily said, I'm going to close with the version of the Lord's Prayer that we use at the open door. Will you please pray with me? Our beloved friend outside the domination system, may your holy name be honored by the way we live our lives. Your beloved community, come. Guide us to walk your walk, talk your talk, to sit your silence inside the courtroom, on the streets, and in the jailhouses as they are on the margins of resistance. Give us this day everything we need. Forgive us our wrongs as we forgive those who have wronged us. Do not bring us to hard testing, but keep us safe from the evil one. For thine is the beloved community, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You are dismissed, go in peace.